Blog Talk Radio. You're listening to The Keys 107 on Blog Talk Radio. I'm your host tonight. Sit back and get ready. We got a hot show for you. The healthy tip of the day is up next. The Keys 107 Network presents the healthy tip of the day. Well, today's healthy tip of the day comes from Acts of Faith, Daily Meditations for People of Color by Iyala Van Zan. And on May 30th, Iyala Van Zan writes, There are no circumstances around you more powerful than power than the power within you. You are responsible for your life through your consciousness. Racism, sexism, homophobia, ageism have no power over you unless you believe they do. A belief is the most contagious influence you possess. If you believe in circumstances, they can and will defeat you. If you believe in yourself, you are assured victory. There is a wonderful inner world at work within each of us. It knows no color, no gender, or age. We fuel this inner world with intuitive ingenuity and a picture in our minds. The world responds and produces accordingly to how you fuel it. If we picture poverty and oppression and failure and disease and doubt, we cannot expect it to enjoy wealth, success, and health. When we put the forces of our inner self to work with good thoughts, it will produce according to our system of ideas. If we can keep our inner world clean, fertilize our minds with productive positivity, the powers within will create a dynamic force that we all believe is possible. So the healthy tip is to fuel your inner world with positive possibilities. Well, I'm Sister Rafika, and I thank you for taking your time to spend with us here on the Keys 107 Network at the Keys 107 as we pursue opening doors to endless possibilities. Well, today we have a very special show for you. Brother James is here, and as I always say, when Brother James is in the house, expect something wonderful to happen. Uh, We're going to be joined in a few seconds uh, with Attorney James Carter, who is a former New Orleans City Councilman and a former New Orleans Criminal Court Justice Commissioner. And James Carter is going to be talking to us about the alarming homicide rate nationally. And he's going to offer a solution to this problem. So sit back, go get your pens and your papers, get ready to write and take notes. We'll be back after this brief commercial break. Services LLC is on the cutting edge of emerging technologies for designing online classes and providing face-to-face and virtual technology training or help with computer programs, web design, and graphic arts. 
We also provide biography writing services for websites. For more information, give us a call at 631-399-0149. That's 631-399-0149. The Fluffs present the alphabet. Now found in paperback. Sporting a five-star rating on Amazon.com. Fashions and gifts that bring out the best in you. Moon 107 is an online retail store featuring women's and men's clothing at the gift shop. The woman's shop features stylish tunics, suits, and accessories and offers the well-dressed woman an outlet to find the perfect gift for self or for someone else. The men's shop offers classy French cut shirts for the well-dressed man. The gift shop offers organic skin, hair, And um, we have some, uh, this is Sister Rafika, I'm coming to you live right now, and we've got some really exciting news to share with our community here, and that's that the um, children's book, The Fluffs Present the Alphabet, A Journey to Learning Your ABCs, is now available on Kindle for $9.99. So for all of your little ones in the house and your relatives' little ones and your friends' little ones who are just learning to read, Make sure you go to Amazon.com and click on that Kindle and purchase that for them. I'm sure it will be a joy. Well, uh, James is in the house, uh, James Muhammad, and also James Carter, straight from New Orleans, is here. And um, I must give him my sincere apologies for for forgetting about the one hour (laughs) time difference. Um, No matter how many times I call New Orleans, I always, always forget about that time difference. And before we bring on James Carter to bring the heat and talk about the homicides in black America and offer a solution, um, I want to just uh, thank Ernie J. Smith, South African jazz artist, for giving us the privilege and the honor of playing his music as the backdrop in our healthy tip of the days and our, our introduction. Um, Ernie, we appreciate you and your music. Uh, so, Brother James, um, come on in. Yes, uh, yes, Rafika. Greetings and peace to all our listening audience. And today we are going to uh, discuss a very sober um, uh, conversation in terms of the uh, physical and mental health of our people and emotional health um, in regards to how we handle and deal with the homicides that are going on in our community. And uh, our brother James Carter, whom I'm going to bring in, and he's going to help introduce himself to many of you all. He will definitely be someone that you'll be looking to see in your communities or reach out to because he is a, a wealth of information. He is a, uh, a freedom fighter and a brother whom we're looking for big things to come out of, and we're going to support him in his effort to continuously fight for black people. So uh, without any further ado. 
Um, also, let's mention let's mention that uh, James Carter is the attorney for the uh, Peacekeeper Global Initiative. Um, some of you are familiar with our Peacekeepers Roll Call that comes on Tuesday at 5.30 here on the Keys 107 Network. Uh, Brother James Carter, whom James and I met on the Peacekeepers Roll Call with Captain Dennis, um, is the attorney. Okay. With that being said, let's bring on James Carter and uh, allow him to tell us a little bit about himself. James, are you there? I'm here. Well, it's wonderful to have you on the Keys 107, brother, and uh, for you to come and step into this arena to speak about such a topic that is very touching in, in the black community. We uh, commend you for stepping to the table. So how are you doing today, my brother? I am great. I am great and happy to be on your show. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Well, let's first, before we begin to paint the picture, because many of us have our own stories to tell when it comes to death in the black community by the way of uh, violence, uh, we want to first talk about you and introduce you to our uh, listening audience. Um, I want to take us back uh, some years ago in terms of Howard University. Would you tell us a little bit about that experience, that wonderful experience that you received at Howard University and how that impacted you to become the man that you are today? Well, it was, a, it, again, thank you very much for allowing me to uh, participate in such a, uh, a beautiful, wonderful, and informative and important show. Um, going back to Howard, it goes back um, way back into 1987. Um, when I graduated from high school, I went on to Howard University, and I first started off as a as a theater major at Howard uh, University. Um, going into my latter years, I ended up being a philosophy major because I, w- I was trying to figure out how to unlock the, the mysteries of the universe, if you will. You're trying to yes, figure sir. the whole thing out. And um, at Howard was an extremely wonderful experience because it's it's the we, we call it the capstone, and it's. It's actually the, the largest concentration of African uh, uh, people of African descent who are scholars in the world. I mean, you have um, this university that's um, a world-renowned and world-prominent, and it was just so many activities on campus at that time, and I met a lot of exciting people, and it helped to frame my perspective with regard to what we need to do um, as people of color in terms of our global self. Uh, as, I, as I went on to Howard University School of Law, there was a great um, gentleman in our history named uh, Charles Hamilton Houston, who was the architect of the Brown v. Board of Education um, case in terms of strategy. He was the teacher of Thurgood Marshall, the dean of Howard's Law School. And he basically said this, that a lawyer is either a social engineer or a parasite on society. Mm. And I, I chose um, to be a social engineer. So uh, in that experience, I met wonderful people. Uh, in fact, um, I met um, uh, Minister Farrakhan when I was there in my, in my freshman year there at Howard. He did a speech at the school. I was actually there at Mayfield Mansions when the Dope Busters were there. I actually was on the site when <laughs> that day that the minister actually visited that, um, that particular site. So it, was a, it was a rich experience. I got to meet all types of people from around the world. It helped to, to frame my perspective with regard to our duty as individuals who have opportunity to learn in higher educational settings um, to our to the community um, to uplift and lift as we climb. So that's sort of the perspective I come from. Mm-hmm. Well, brother, while you were there at Howard University, I, I take it that you were 
the type of student that just didn't settle for mediocre grades that you excelled. So in what areas did you focus on first in your undergrad? Well, my first, my undergrad studies, I actually started out as a, as, as a theater major. Mm-hmm. Um, back in New Orleans, I actually attended a fame type high school. I mean, you remember fame, the, the show, yes. where there are disciplines in different areas, and I, and I was a theatrical um, major, a theater major at that school, that uh, school at the time. And when I went to Howard, my first year, I was a theater major. Then I, um, I, I changed my major to philosophy with the intent uh, to go on to law school, uh, which which I did, and, and I ended up graduating with a, uh, a degree, a BA in philosophy, and a minor in theater. And then I worked for three years in the community in New Orleans doing grassroots activism. Uh, and then uh, from there, I went back to Howard University to attend the law school from 1994 to 1997. And graduating from there, I, I went on, came on back to New Orleans, and um, pursues some more interest in dealing with community affairs. And then I, when I started to practice law, I became a public defender because I was interested in dealing with issues specifically as it relates to African-American males and the over-incarceration of African-American males and what can I do from a criminal defense perspective. Um, so I did that for several years and um, was able to really involve myself in some really serious uh, cases, which we're going to talk about a little later, um, which goes back to the topic, um, the main topic that we're dealing with, and it's the homicide rate in the city. I represented many of those young men um, who were accused of of homicide here in the city of New Orleans. Um, mm. So, so that's sort of how I evolved from my undergraduate years to law school, and that's sort of how I started out there. Um, and um, and then from there, obviously, I went on and did some other things that we're going to talk about in a second. Okay, okay. I'm glad we laid that track record uh, down because, you know, we always have uh, powerhouses coming out of Howard University. We always recognize them for doing great work in the community. It's something that's instilled in them as they go through those four years or five years or six years of studying and living among people who are trying to do something progressive. So that, that right there is a great foundation for you all to hear because um, I think people recognize and respect the fact that you studied at a traditional black college and are doing extremely well for yourself. So now let's move forward a little bit, brother. I know that you have had some dealings in the government down in New Orleans and you've done some private practice, but I, I like to go into the um, the areas of uh, the politics, the uh, when you were in city uh, city council, and and then that migrated, I guess, into the, becoming the commissioner or the czar uh, down there. I guess it was for about two years, a year and a half to two years in New Orleans. Can you tell us about that experience um, in terms of dealing with criminal justice in those positions? Well, going. Thank you very much for that. Going back to 2005, everybody knows what happened in August of 2005, and that was Hurricane Katrina. Uh, mm-hmm. Prior to prior to Hurricane Katrina. Um, as you all have probably had the opportunity to witness back um, at that time. But prior to Hurricane Katrina, I had a consideration of entering politics, but basically decided not to do it. Um, And the storm hit. um, My wife and I, my son, we we left and went to Houston. And when we got to Houston, we looked back at CNN, saw everything that was going on in the city and said, you know what? I have to go ahead on and put my hat in and see what I can do to help uh, in the community. So came back to New Orleans after about three or four months, 
um, living in Houston, going to the the Astrodome where so many people were laid out there, didn't have a place to go, and so the Astrodome there, so many of our citizens in New Orleans was there, were there, uh, came back to the city and decided to run for the city council. Um, folks thought it, you know, didn't think I had a chance. Um, I wasn't born and raised in the part of the city that I ran in, but my wife's family had deep roots there, and I had other uh, community connections in that area. So ran and won. So from 2006 to 2010, I served uh, in the first city council in post-Katrina um, in New Orleans. Um, did that, and while I was on the council, I was appointed, because of my history and my background in working in the criminal justice system, was appointed to the criminal justice committee as the chair of that committee on the city council. Uh, from that post, I was able to um, lead a, several efforts to reform the criminal justice system, including um, uh, what's called an independent police monitor, the first independent police monitor to deal with the issue of police misconduct in the city's history, and also to deal with the issue of over-incarceration by means of individuals, mostly people of color, being arrested over small-time small nonviolent offenses and overpopulating our jail. So I was able to do some work there, which has resulted now as a continuum now in a much smaller jail. Cause we, uh, by the way, pre-Katrina, New Orleans had a jail uh, 7,000 strong in the city of New Orleans, which was the eighth largest prison in the country right here in the city of New Orleans, in the, in the borders of the city of New Orleans. Now that jail um, size is cut in half right now, partly due to my efforts and many others, but that was a big issue for me when I was on the city council. Um, after I completed my stint on the city council in 2010, I, I chose not to run. Uh, politics and I didn't work very well together uh, <laughs> for uh, reasons that, you know, you see the madness involved in politics, but I decided to leave politics, and a year after I left, the new mayor of the city of New Orleans, who was elected in 2010, recruited me to come back and become uh, what's called the criminal justice commissioner for the city of New Orleans. And I served in that capacity for a year and a half, and now I'm in my private practice pursuing um, interests in various areas um, based upon my expertise and my, my experience, particularly with the criminal justice system and other areas that I've dealt with from a plaintiff's perspective um, to represent people who are grieved in various areas. Mm. Wow, brother. That is a wealth of uh, background, and I, and I know that the people of New Orleans benefited from your effort and your time that you spent in those public offices, but now I see you have taken um, this opportunity to go into private practice, and now I believe this is where you roll up your sleeves and the, the real fun begins because you have so much more that you can actually expand your um, your your, uh, your practice to you, you know not no longer just relegated to a New Orleans as I understand you are ready to unleash the knowledge that you have and the, the uh, energy you have to fight and combat injustice wherever you can find it is that am I correct in saying that yes that's absolutely correct in fact I presently have cases uh, pending in in Mississippi and uh, Virginia. I um, had a case in New York, and there are other cases I'm looking at. I'm looking at a case right now in New Jersey that we might take on, uh, a brutality case, a police misconduct case we're looking at right now. We haven't been hired yet, but we're looking at that case right now. But we're willing to go anywhere um, that we can 
uh, do good work to serve the interests of an individual who was wronged, who may have been wronged, uh, for various reasons. So uh, we certainly, um, I am certainly, we are certainly, as my, my firm, um, interested in making sure that we militate for justice no matter where it is, um, not only here but uh, other, other places. Yes, sir. You know, before we go into um, the, the next phase of this conversation, I just wanted to put it out there for the listening audience to understand that you are involved with a movement to to bring about peace, and that uh, movement is called the Peacekeepers. Could you tell us about your involvement, uh, your connection to the movement, and your aspirations uh, uh, as it regards to uh, making the Peacekeepers relevant? Well, the peacekeepers. I was. I had the, the blessing and the, and the pleasure of meeting a minister uh, or captain uh, Dennis uh, Muhammad um, back when I was an undergrad at Howard University, and he had always impressed me as an individual who was uh, knowledgeable, strong, and a role model uh, for me as a young man coming up under him to address the issues in the community. And through the years, I've I've tracked. Um, uh, Captain Muhammad's progress in working throughout issues throughout the community. So he's been down to New Orleans several times, and uh, last year we, he and I, were able to uh, meet again. And but this time we met under the under the um, under the auspices of his organization that he created called the Peacekeepers. And the Peacekeepers um, are operating here. Um, Minister uh, Willie Muhammad is down here working with the peacekeepers as the head. In fact, I had a conversation with him yesterday, a couple of days ago, about some some things that they're working on down here. But it's an effort to, to build stronger relationships in the community um, between um, law enforcement and the community, teach the community how to, to deal with situations that, uh, from a legal rights perspective, but to, to basically take responsibility in our own communities to make sure that we provide a better path and a better way um, for the community, so I've been involved um, with the with the peacekeepers, and specifically right now, where there are issues that individuals may be aggrieved around the country, and the peacekeepers have an issue. One is I'm here to uh, provide legal uh, advice um, to this, this great organization, but in addition to that, um, oftentimes because of the peacekeepers' unique reputation, not only here in this country but globally, because there are peacekeeper chapters. Um, um, across the seas, um, we're able to um, we're able to deal with legal issues sometimes where an individual may have been wronged um, by some law enforcement agency. Uh, but beyond that, um, from my perspective, I'm not just one who deals with issues from uh, one being agreed from a law enforcement perspective, but also any other perspective. There are environmental issues. There are um, issues with regard to manufacturer defect issues, and, and so on. Um, I, like I had a client in 2011 that was electrocuted wrongfully by the power company down here, um, which we dealt with that and got a, a huge um, verdict for that individual uh, on that matter. So there's a myriad of issues there, but the thing I like about the posture I've taken from a legal perspective is that from a plaintiff's lawyer's perspective, we're able to militate for justice and try to make individuals whole who are agreed for many myriad of reasons. Wow, brother. You know, I want to step into that arena that we really want to focus on the missing piece. The missing piece. 
And, folks, when we say the missing piece, we mean the missing piece. I'm going to paint the picture globally, but um, throughout the United States, and I'm going to use the year 2010. Um, And I'll use that year because those are the statistics that have been readily available to us through the uh, FBI and other law enforcement agencies that have collected the data in terms of the murders and the the serious deaths that have been taking place. Um, In the year 2010, there was a total of 12,996,000 Murders in the United States. 12,996,000 murders in the United States. Mm. Almost half of those murders were murders, were black people. 6,470 of those 12,996 were black people murdered. In 2010. Now I'm just painting a picture, and then we're going to kind of look at this because, you know, we take our lead and our, our cue from our uh, illustrious leader, the Honorable Minister Louis Farrakhan, and I re- recall him several times, you know, um, accounting for the death tolls and trying to equate it to something. That is just one year of death. Six thousand four hundred and seventy black folk murdered in America in the year 2010. And he equated deaths to military operations, the Afghanistan and the Iraqi uh, Operation Freedom was the quotes pretty much. And pretty much if you look at those, these figures, listen how they line up. In a 10-year period of these military uh, operations from the year 2003 to 2012, 6,410 soldiers died in military conflict. 6,410 soldiers died. But that's in a 10-year period. But in one year, in 2010, half the murders in America were black people, and it was 6,470 Black people murdered in America in one year, and only 6,410 soldiers dying in two military conflicts. Someone needs to add it up. This is just not right. So I say to you, my brother, when we start to drill down, the numbers don't tell a lie. There is some type of conspiracy or some type of military operation taking place in America to see this many black bodies being put to rest. So I want for us to paint this picture and look at how devastating these numbers are, and then let's go into it. Because in every city of America, you know, there are black people dying, and in some some cities, more than others. And I want to know, why is that? Why is it that New Orleans could be painted the murder capital of the uh, uh, of the world one year, and Newark the next year, and and D.C. the next year, and and so forth and so forth. What is going on? 
and what can we do about it? So I'll paint the picture for you, Brother James. You can start wherever you want with this thing and just break it down. You can start in New Orleans because, it, it, you know, for a long time, reigning capital of murder, at least that's what they say. So maybe you could tell us a little something about that, my brother. Very, very, very um, sobering framing, very um, articulate framing from your perspective there. And it's just, it's really, really a sad situation. Um, and, and it's so sad that so often we live in these environments and we are sort of anesthetized um, from, this, from these realities, but it, it's real. Um, like I mentioned to you the other day, in my capacity as the criminal justice commissioner for the city of New Orleans, I literally went to the scene and saw the fresh dead bodies, bullet-riddled bodies of uh, young, um, almost exclusively African-American males. And New Orleans has gotten a dubious distinction of having have the highest per capita murder rate in so many years. But New Orleans is not much different from many urban areas around the country. For instance, let's, let's go into the, the numbers in New Orleans, and then we can go a little bit broader with regard to the numbers uh, nationwide. But in New Orleans, um, in 2011, the Department of Justice issued a report that studied the context of homicide here in New Orleans. And that context included looking at 200 homicides from 2009 and 2010. And let me, let me present to you some of, the, uh, some, of the, some of the information that was provided based on that study. First of all, 85, I'm sorry, 86.5% of the individuals who were victims of homicide in New Orleans were male. 91.5% of those individuals were African-American male. Over half of those individuals were under the age of 28. 73% of them had criminal history. In New Orleans, and we'll talk about this a different, a little different than other places, we don't have a large gang population. We have loosely organized clusters of individuals down here. We don't have huge gangs. More than 55% of those individuals were unemployed. And listen to this. Roughly about 80% of the victims and the perpetrators knew each other. About 80% of the victims and the perpetrators knew each other. And when you dig a little bit deeper here in New Orleans, what you find is that many of those individuals actually grew up in the same neighborhood with each other, went to school, played park ball together, grew up in, in was, was the victim of the, the hand of murder from one another. Which is, which is unbelievable when you look at it. It tears up families. It tears up the fabric of community. It's a lot of pressure on the mothers and so on. So the other thing that you find from my own study here is that most of these individuals don't have a father at home who are the victims as well as the perpetrator, per perpetrators of this crime, these types of crimes. In New Orleans, unlike other cities, more of our homicides here happen as the, um, a, an argument getting out of control as opposed to some area that has beef simply because of strict uh, drug trafficking or something like that. We, we have more homicides in New Orleans per capita to happen from a simple argument getting out of control. Okay? However, when you look at the nation as a whole, let's talk about those same crime statistics that you talked about, Brother James, earlier today with regard to 
the 2011 Uniform Crime Reports, New York City had 536 murders in 2010. Chicago had 432. Detroit had 310. Philadelphia had 306. Los Angeles had 293. Houston had 269. Baltimore had 223. And New Orleans had 175. So just from a numerical count perspective, New Orleans was the eighth most murderous city in the United States. However, when you take a deep dive into the pockets of murder in these various areas around the country, it's all about the same. All of them have high degrees of poverty. All of them have high degrees of um, African-American males being the perpetrators as well as the victims of most of these crimes. All of them. So it's the same story nationwide repeated over and over and over again, over and over and over again. And so the question becomes, what are some of the, what are some of the uh, indicators or what are some of the um, attributes of why these why they have there's such a kindling of this type of negative flame going forth in the communities that we um, so are so aware of? Well, let's say if we if we reverse these indicators that we have in terms of educational levels, in terms of job opportunities, it tends to feed towards an atmosphere that are not so um, murderous. One of the things I was able to tell individuals when I was in uh, certain capacities, I continue to um, share this from one perspective, and that is that I have not seen any environment around the country, and I like to use the Fairfax, Virginia model, because Fairfax, Virginia looks like Mr. Rogers' neighborhood. You know, when I was in Washington, D.C. in law school, riding through it, it literally looks like Mr. Rogers' neighborhood. The schools are fine, the, the, uh, the the unemployment rate is low, and I have not seen where there is good housing stock, where there, the employment rates are high, where the education is strong, where there's also a high murder rate at the same time. At the same time, at the same time, there are areas around the country and around the world that don't have the same degree of economic problems or have a, a deeper um, poverty rate than New Orleans have not the same economic opportunities, but the murder rate is low. So what's the difference in these areas? Part, I see two um, particular things I see. One is to, one, have opportunity to, um, to achieve, okay, opportunity to achieve, opportunity to have um, economic prosperity. That's a big thing, all right? The other thing, though, is to make sure from a spiritual perspective that we are imbued with the right uh, principles and the right um, moral disposition to choose a certain path, um, if you will, towards success. So even in the most, the poorest situation, there's a lot of rural areas, maybe poorer than the city of New Orleans. At the same time, you don't have the same degree of homicide, right? And so one of the big studies that I've learned about and what we've talked about is when there is huge disparities in the, in the um underprivileged, if you will, with regards to economic opportunities and there are huge gulfs in those who have and those who have not, you find that you find higher, higher homicide rates in situations like that. For instance, in New Orleans, there's a huge extreme. There's very, the middle class is weakening in New Orleans. Right? You have those who have and those who have not, and the extremes are huge down here in the city of New Orleans. Likewise, when you look at other places around the country, um, and you look at high murder rates in those areas around the country, you find similar situations where 
when the despair is great between those who have and those who have not, then you find a situation where the um, the murder rate tends to be a little high, even though there are poorer situations in other areas, such as rural areas, that don't have uh, the same degree of homicides. Pardon me, brother. Hello? I'm sorry. My my mic was uh, jamming up a little bit on me here. I don't know if you can hear me. I can hear you. Good, very good. You know, it is a formula that you just pretty much painted for us by going through the numbers. And it looks as no employment, no fathers, no hope, and no spirituality means death. That's right. Exactly. It means death. And the one thing, you know, we there's a lot of things we can take from these numbers. When you talked about the 95% of these murders in New Orleans being either the victim was black or or the perpetrator was black, that's something because on the national level, they show that um, just about 90% of, of of black folk who have been murdered have been murdered by black folk, and when and even in the other community, white folks at a clip of eighty three percent murder their own, but they don't murder their own as frequently and as often as we do. Right. So there's something to be said about this employment. It is something to be said about this the broken down um, the family. It's something to be said about um, a lack of spirituality in the homes and in our community. And if we see those are things that are breaking us down, causing us to be angry enough at ourselves to murder ourselves, then maybe we got to focus on those areas to cause the solution to this devastation that's going on in our community. And that's, that's interesting. It's interesting you say that because... Until I actually experienced and went out into the streets and actually visited these murder scenes and actually dig a, did a deeper dive, I did not quite understand something I heard Dr. King say um, many years ago when I was studying his speeches. He said, in one of his speeches, he said, he said, when you stop hoping, you die. When you stop hoping, you die. So, like you so eloquently stated, hopelessness in these areas, right? And hopelessness feeds into the disparities when you look at those who have and those who have not. In New Orleans, it's so extreme that the individuals who don't have, the, the have-nots, the so-called have-nots in this particular community, have a huge sense of hopelessness and despair because it appears as though, it, it appears as though there's no way out of this, this condition. There's no way out of this particular situation. However, when you look at potential solutions to these issues. I believe that that missing piece has to do with us hinging up on a spiritual disposition that we cannot um, take for granted. Mm. We cannot take for granted that the power of a, from a spiritual source and a spiritual conscience can compel an, an individual who has hopelessness to have hope. Okay. And not only that hope is something intellectual or spiritual from a spooky sense, because we talk about spook religion a lot, right? Mm-hmm. This is not spooky. This is real. It is That's real right. that this, the word, uh, or God's word, and the word that we 
so um, claim that we believe in so often, those are the, that's the same measure that we're going to have to use to come out of our condition. When, when from, a, from a scriptural perspective, when Saul was on that Damascus road and he got hit, he got hit with a, what, a beam of light. It was, that beam of light was God's word. It helped, it helped to transform him from a person who was a persecutor of Christians at that time to one of the greatest preachers of that time of the word of God at that particular time. But it was nothing less than a fiery word that helped to compel him there. Now, from my perspective, what is that powerful word that can be used to move us into action? Let's take the instance. I've heard this before many times, and this is real. If you look at the spending power of African Americans in this country, okay, it's about a trillion dollars a year. A trillion dollars a year puts us in like the top 20 economies in the world. If, 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 if the African American community were, um, were placed in a situation whereby um, our economy or our buying power was compared to many foreign nations, then we, have, we actually have more buying power than many foreign nations. That's okay? correct. Okay, so if the scriptures are saying, and there's a scripture that goes something like this, that the, um, God gave, um, or they use the word master in this particular situation, gave one, one man five, another one two, another one one, talents. Or, talents, or, or go ahead. Talents, right? Mm-hmm. One, the one he gave five produced ten, the one he gave two produced four. But the one who gave, he gave one, put, uh, put his talent into the ground and waited for the master to return and said, Master, I, I hid this talent in the ground waiting for you to come back to give it back to you. Mm. And the master actually took that talent from him saying, you were not wise with what I gave you. You were not wise with what I gave you. Likewise, I believe that we have the same capacity in the community to compel and to provide those jobs that we need for ourselves in these communities, to do what we need to do to come out of it, but we have to have a, a, a spiritual disposition, someone who's willing to provide the word to teach us properly to get us to in a, in a, in a posture of hopefulness that we can come out of our condition. And so what I believe, going back to the topic that we're talking about and what we're calling here, the missing piece, I think that that is the missing piece that's going to ultimately have a sustained impact on us as opposed to a temporal impact based upon government programs or other fly-by-night initiatives. Yes, sir. My brother, um, we have a uh, guest caller on the line that's been on for a while who wanted to come in and actually share with us as well. His name okay. is Ken Williams, and you're very familiar with him. Is Ken, are you uh, are you on the line right now? I am, Brother James. How are you tonight? Thank you I'm for having me. Thank you. Go ahead, Ken and, and James. I know you both have been made acquainted to one another. Go ahead and uh, pose your question or make your comment, brother. Um, I just wanted to, to state a couple more facts. Um, when you look at the FBI tables and you look at the number of people that are incarcerated in any given year, it's roughly around 9.5 million is the total number of people that's there. When you look at the percentage of people based on race that are incarcerated, it's roughly 39% um, white, 38% black. When you break it down and you look at the number of violent crimes that were committed, um, it's roughly, uh, out of that, that, that total number, it's roughly, again, somewhere around 38% black, 39% white. 
there's this um, there's this uh, a lot of misinformation that goes on out there. Uh, part of it is uh, based on the fact that when you look at the total number of people uh, in the United States, for instance, the population is roughly around 300 million. Um, 60 uh, to 70 million are white. Um, 12 uh, to 14% are black. Uh, 14 or so percent are Hispanic. And then when, we, when you look at Asian um, and some of the other uh, races, they're, they're smaller uh, groups of people. The, the issue as a homicide detective, when I think about my experience going into homes and having the misfortune of talking to parents that have lost a loved one, some of the things that resonated in my many years of experience in dealing with um, these type of uh, heinous crimes that, that, that are cyclical, more so in the black community than any other community, is that there, there, there is some commonality between each of, the, each of these crimes. Um, very few people I have found um, considered uh, education to be a, a, a very important thing in their lives. Many of them were, were people that uh, actually dropped out of high school, didn't complete their education, found themselves uh, economically challenged based on the poor decision not to complete an education, which then led to maybe uh, uh, you know drug sales or breaking and entering people's homes or committing other types of acts, which then led to some form of violence based on their actions. And some of the parents that are out there, we have to realize as parents, we're responsible for our children from from in, from time of inception to age 18. These are some of the more critical times of any young adult's life, all the way to adulthood. And the decisions that are made in the earliest part, from inception to age three, are some of the most uh, vital years for as far as learning. And there are uh, children that, uh, let's say, for instance, that are in the fifth grade. If you have a parent that has a fifth grader that's missing 20 days of school or 15 days of school, you're setting your child up for failure. If you have uh, an eighth grader that is hanging out till uh, 1 or 2 o'clock in the morning when there's nothing for that child to be doing out there at that hour, you're setting your child up for failure. Um the person response has to come back to the home, and the decisions that parents are making, um, you know, with their children, they have to go and not be a friend to their child, but be a parent. But at the same time, realize that when we have our children, we're making sacrifices for our children. We have to make sure that we elevate our children and we make sure that we protect our children. I found in my experience that certain Certain parents were distracted by other worldly things, and their children became secondary, and therefore many of those children are the same children in my career that later grew up to be someone that carried a gun, later up grew up to be someone that was morally challenged, ethically challenged. Someone that, again, like I said, failed school, and they didn't have a parent, and they didn't have a mechanism in place to help catch that long before they walked away from uh, grade school at age 16, which allows a, a young adult to leave a school situation on their own at age 16. 
these are the type of cycles that I saw uh, firsthand. And, you know, I, I know my parents um, didn't graduate college, but they made sure they instilled in me that I was supposed to graduate college. If I came home with bad grades, I understood very, very sternly that that was not, you know, that was not something that was going to be acceptable. I was always taught from early age that I was smart, that I was bright, that I was loved. There are so many children out there that are in homes that are not loved. That wow. is the truth. That is the truth of what's going on, and that is the reason why, unfortunately, we have to look in ourselves and in our families and realize that the 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 answer to fixing this problem. And I try. I've tried to go and tell people this for a long time. The actual answer to fixing the problem is, from a law enforcement standpoint, instead of trying to go out and guess about who is out there doing things, all you have to do is go to a high school, a grammar school, pull the absentee records of kids that are absent 15, 20 days, 30 days, failing grades. Those are the kids that are going to be the future people that are out there doing things. If you get into those homes at the earliest point possible, most of the programs that are out there are for towards the end of a child's career in, in school, if their intervention was at the earliest point possible, where you you looked at these stats from an education standpoint, get it parents to have some sort of intervention, discussion, and also gave some help to the child, you would prevent that child from falling into incarceration later on. That's my experience. Well, Brother Ken, thank you for your contribution because you're right in line with James just speaking about the solution, you know, because all those things, if you had a spiritual movement that focused on educating people, focused on people teaching skill sets so that they could be self-reliant and mm. um, be able to do for themselves to make a living, wouldn't have to fall so deeply in that economic um, divide. Um, and the spirituality of learning to love themselves and mm. also their brother as themselves, they could not, you know, readily uh, kill one another. And so we have to um, maybe kind of guide them, the movement of all of this to the younger people. And I want to go back to James for a minute, right? James, when you put out there no education and then you hear your brother, Ken, um, speak about the lack of education and dropouts, and what I'm hearing right now is that, first of all, some of these homicides and I don't know if anybody got the stats on it, are being committed by younger people every day. You know, there was a time we didn't hear about teenage murderers. But can someone speak about that and talk about how we can do some early intervention better well, let me, than let me, we're doing and, now? And, yeah, thank you very much. And thank you, um, Brother Ken, for what you, what you, what you so eloqu- eloquently articulated there. Let me let me go back. Let me go back to something there. First of all, in New Orleans, it's basically African American males between the age of 14 and like 25 years old. That's the basic frame of reference with regard to uh, young men, and, and ha- more than half of them are under the age of 20, 23. Okay, but going back to what um, Brother Ken said, which is very very important, a lot of what he's what what I found in the political context when I was in office as well as post office. We refuse to deal with the real issues that Ken was talking about there. 
We refuse to deal with the issues of responsibility, uh, self-responsibility. We refuse to deal with the issues of uh, those things that we need to do or the fact that his parents made him feel special. And when I looked at what, what factors caused me to achieve what I've achieved today, and, and as far as I'm concerned, I'm an underachiever because my parents were so good to me. You know, my dad was there for me and my mom, and they continue to be there for me. They did make me feel like I was something special very early on in my life, okay? So the question for me is, and the, the, the call of the day for me is, not just to stop what we are doing from the perspective of this one conversation here. I believe that we need to take a long, deep dive, roll our sleeves up, and actually produce a blueprint for the community, okay? And this, blue, this, this blueprint will go forth and give us particular instructions on what we need to do in terms of this whole issue about looking at the, um, those individuals who are not showing up at school. This whole thing about if, uh, the early indicators where personalities are, are created in a kid by the age of five years old, right? What instructions can we give a parent with regard to how you talk to your kids and make that kid feel special no matter what the environment is that they're, they're coming up in? What do we do about holding um, ourselves responsible as African-American men not to produce babies and not take care of them, right? What those types of things, in addition to all the racial issues that we have in the society on top of these issues, but I believe that we are strong enough to override those things, but it's going to take a detailed, painful approach to getting down to the basics relative to um, instruction on these matters. You know, in, involving ourselves in our kids' lives by making sure that we're present, making sure that we are checking on our kids on a weekend basis, making sure that sports is a part of the, um, the development of our kids and so on. So I'm saying all that, Brother James, to say this. I know this, I'm going to have to leave in a few minutes of this program, but what I would like, what I would like to see is that this, is, this particular conversation and obviously things that you've been doing already we put together a guideline or a blueprint of detailed instructions based upon recommendations that we can give a parent, no matter how distressed the situation may be, to help them to come out of the condition. Because at the same time that there's a lot of despair emanating out of these communities, there are also there are a lot of success stories where individuals have come up in very difficult circumstances in these same neighborhoods, but they have achieved based on some formula that's out there, right? Some formula where a mother is, is, is there for their kids, and I, I know of situations down here where a mom is, uh, has raised a family full of boys without a father, but at the same time those boys became very, very successful um, in life. And I think that we can put together, based upon spiritual instructions, because I truly believe that the only way that we can change a situation that is this dire it's through a word from God. That's, that's what I really believe. I believe it's only God's word, a word from God from a spiritual perspective, is strong enough to actually change a negative trajectory, right? And those who claim they believe God's word, whether it be Islam or whether it be Christianity or whether you think those are one and the same, if, you truly, if we truly believe that, then we have to believe that there's a solution from a spiritual perspective that can actually change our condition that we have. And because, I think... Because, I, oh, I'm sorry, go ahead. I'm sorry, you go ahead. 
No, no, I was about to say one thing that we have to realize is that, biblically speaking, God has always granted each person free will. Mm-hmm. And in, in, this, in this realm, because we have free will, we have free will to succeed and we have free will to fail. And I think what's happening in, in, in some of the homes where we have um, socioeconomic challenges occurring in those homes, because black people in this country have a co- completely different history compared to every other person, every other race, every other culture, every other ethnicity that's in this country. We have a completely different type of beginning from everybody else. We're the only people that were displaced from one land and brought to another land for several hundred years, raped, pillaged, uh, went through several hundred years of atrocities, and then set free mm-hmm. with no money, with no economic base. And now here we are 150 years later, and we're making strides. If you think about how we were treated for several hundred years, it's remarkable that we're not worse off than we are. That's, that's a fact. Mm-hmm. And, and so what we have to do now is understand that the close-knit community that maybe 30, 40 years ago that involved the telephone has now become, um, uh, uh, it's, it's now even further apart based on Internet, based on technology. I mean, neighbors aren't neighbors any longer. Neighbors can be across shores. You see what I'm saying? So the concerns that people might have had 30 or 40 years ago aren't the same um, type of people that are watchful of their neighbors today as they were 30 or 40 years ago. So that systemically will have it so that crime can fester in areas where people are less involved or or detached from their community because they're trying to go and focus on those social issues and economic issues that we're talking about here. So there's a lot of of moving parts to this. And I I think in order to solve this, in order to go and stop the, the, the tide of homicides, uh, people uh, not graduating from school, you've got to go at, to the very, very beginning. And you have to identify, unfortunately, people who need assistance, who are having children from the very, very beginning. And someone has to be in the homes. When you look at school stats and people not showing up to school, there's no reason for a fifth grader not to be in school. That's a parental issue. That's not a child issue. Mm-hmm. Well, and once you once you identify those parents, and you identify the fact that the parent is responsible for that child not being there, and you somehow, either through a city ordinance or something, try to empower someone to go in and start talking to those people that are identified, you stop the homicides 10 or 15 years later. Mm, very well put, Ken. And i just like to say this, that um, there is opportunity for those who want to help to stem this um this murderous um, mindset that we have, like you said, you know, start early into uh, early intervention, and I believe we have to just create the movement. The movement is here. You have the peacekeepers, you have the Nation of Islam under the leadership of Minister Louis Farrakhan, spiritually grounded and rooted, and establishing the opportunity for those of us who really want to do some good to go out there and do that good. So I think if we keep having this dialogue and we put the pieces together and bring in experts to talk to the the, the psychology of the black mind and then give children opportunity and give parents opportunity, I think we can have some success in a relative short period of time. Well, what I... 
I'm sorry, James, I didn't mean to cut you. Um, what I would like to suggest to James Carter and even invite Ken, Ken Williams to um, look look towards some time in the future where we could have a kind of roundtable discussion with parents to help us begin to put that blueprint together that you were talking about or that manual together that you were talking about, and let's talk to the mothers of some some of the children who have been murdered and some of the mothers who are raising children, boys on their own, um, to find out what they have to say and um, put it all together and make this a dynamic document that's always being added to and revised. Right, that's beautiful. And that's, yeah. and that's, what, I'm, that's what I'm committed to do. I'm committed to for the long haul because I think um, – we, that type of document is needed today. Um, I think we, we came up with some, some good ideas to put in that document. Obviously, this is too short a period of time to go into a, a myriad of other issues that we could go into and a, a myriad of other suggestions um, that we can do. But I think as a, as a basic matter uh, relative to our faiths, I think that uh, most of the movements that we've seen to be successful are movements that are spiritually based, and I think that spiritual-based movement based upon the proper use of, of the word of God is what we're going to need to change these conditions because no, no secular force can do it. Um, I, that, that's my disposition, and I am committed to working on any project that we spend some time and really put some things in place that will really um, uh, work, be a, um, a living document, if you will, like you said a living document to, to better our condition um, in the well, country. Well, we're going we're to look at some dates in the future. Um, um, James Carter, I'll give you a call, and James Gresham, James Muhammad, I will, I'll give you a call, and uh, we can look at some time to give, enough, give us enough time to promote it to the community to let them know that this is going to be an open forum and we, we really require um, participation, active participation in it. And I'm going to leave you with this thought. My mother my mother used to always say to us that when you're raising children, you have to put the fear of God in them. That's right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's right. That's right. That's right. I agree with that. Well, um, my brothers, um, it is absolutely necessary that we continue this fight and this quest for peace. Peace is missing uh, in our community um, all too often. And we have to bring the peace, and then we have to keep the peace. And so to all of you who are listening, know that people are focusing on this, and we're going to bring all the resources that we need to make some impact into our community. So hang in there with us. Be ready to um, hear the, the call when it is given, and let us unite our resources, our time, our energy, and our love to make a change and find the missing peace. So I'm so going to um, play an Ernie Ernie Smith song, Lovely Things, and when we come back, we have some more announcements. So hold the line. We'll be right back.
Closing out with uh, Gramps Morgan's song "Dream," and just know that you can check out a live uh, arc, uh, a live show 
of Gramps Morgan tomorrow, Friday at 6 o'clock. We call it Gramps, the Gramps Morgan Show where reggae lives. I'm Sister Rafika, always closing in the pursuit of love, peace, and happiness. Thank you one more time.
Opening doors to endless possibilities. I am 